there, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try for free at LogRocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is Amy Dutton. She's returning again on PodRocket once more to talk about storybook and design-driven development. Amy is a lead maintainer over at Redwood.js and an educator. Welcome back, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you. Appreciate that. Let's hop right into it. Design-driven development is kind of a loaded term, and I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of images in their head about what that means. Could you start us off with what you think design-driven development is and maybe what some people think it is that it's actually not? Yes, of course. And also, I can appreciate the pun when you said people have images in their head of what this looks like. So actually, I don't know if that's a pun or not. <laughs> I didn't try it for anyone, but that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was like, not quite punny, but anyways, good metaphor. So yeah, let's start with talking about what design-driven development is not. So a lot of times people want to think that it's this designer versus developer mentality, that it's us against them. And this is what the designers want. And this is what the developers want. And that's not true at all. It's not like designers are trying to take over and drive everything and make all of the decisions. We're all on the same team. And it's also not about prioritizing aesthetics over tech or investing in the looks over the quality and performance. Those things are equally as important. In fact, I would even argue it's not entirely about looks at all, but it's more about trying to save time by building the features that people actually want to use. Design-driven development isn't designing visuals, it's designing the product, I guess, when you say it to me that way. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So do you feel like designers are in this supercharged position uh, of leading the product? And where do you think the designer really steps into this process to start being efficable like right away? Is it right at the beginning, you feel? Yeah, for sure. So one of the designer superpowers is that they're really able to bring the customer into that decision-making process. You know, I like to say that design is cheap. That doesn't mean that what I'm doing is not valuable, but it's a lot easier for me to iterate and build something than it is for a developer. So for example, I can write something with a pen on a sheet of paper and turn it around and get customer feedback on that immediately. That was a very low cost to entry to be able to get that feedback. I have that really low fidelity way of asking them whether what I'm building is working or not and whether they'll enjoy using what I'm creating. And then, of course, I can iterate on that. I can take that pen and paper sketch and turn that into a wireframe. I can also design it in black and white. And then I can also do something in high fidelity with color. And again, continuing to get feedback on each of those iterations so that when it does go to development, you know exactly what you're building and there's research behind it to prove that it is worthwhile. Do you feel like the majority of products would benefit from this like design-driven development ethos? Yeah. And there's actually stats behind it. So design-driven companies are able to reduce costs by 30%. And actually on the S&P 500, companies that are using design-driven development are able to increase productivity by 200%. Those are huge. I have no idea how they come up with those stats, but (laughs) they're out there. (laughs) And like cost, when we're talking about this domain, like cost, it's all people time. 
That's right. Like these are and that, but that's expensive time. Yeah, exactly. That you're saving. So. Well, I mean, how many times as a developer have you built a feature and then the project manager comes back and says, "Let's change this," and then you have to go back and rewrite all your code? Not only is that demoralizing as a developer, but it's also wasting your time. It's all about doing the right thing at the right time. I would love to find a time when that didn't happen, and I can't find one. I, and I think a lot of times when people are said, oh, there's this new way to develop things. Here's developers. Let's all go, go do this. Everybody's like, okay, like, it's going to be the same thing again. Like I'm going to rebuild it 10 times. But this is the direction you want to emphasize, right? We don't want to be doing that. And this is probably one of the mainstays for us to get there. And I will also add in there that it's not necessarily about never iterating. That's not what I'm making a case for. Because when you iterate, you are going to have to rewrite code. You are going to have to get rid of tech debt and design debt. But what I'm thinking more of is when do I create a feature that never goes to prime time, that nobody ever sees, that I feel like I've wasted time and energy on, nobody actually got to interact with. When you're building up to that image of what you want to actually deliver that people will interact with that iterative process, especially in in this design phase that we're talking about. How can designers balance how often they're iterating and how fast they're going? You mentioned like the difference between high fidelity and low fidelity and, and how that gives you a glimpse into what the correct thing is that you're building. But curious on your thoughts about how, that trade-off be, between efficiency and speed and the quality of output. Sure. So it's easy to move fast in the wrong direction, right? But you want to make sure that there is that balance there. There is a great book out there called Work Clean. And actually, as I was checking the link and the author, it may be being retitled to being everything in its place. So if you're trying to find it on Amazon, but it's written by Dan Karnas. And he is a chef and trying to apply those principles that a chef uses within the kitchen to work and life. And so one of the principles is that you slow down to speed up. And so the idea with that as a chef is that you have to stop and clean up your workspace. It doesn't really feel like you're pushing the project or like your food or your plate or your cooking forward because you're having to slow down to clean that up. But in the end, it enables you to move faster because then you have a clean workspace that you can work within. So the same is true for tech. And when you're talking about tech debt, you're going to have to slow down and upgrade packages or you're going to have to migrate to a faster server. And if you're coming at this from an agile perspective, these are usually chores that don't receive points. So your velocity may go down for a sprint, but hopefully over time, it will enable you to achieve more and you'll have a net increase in velocity. So with design, since that's what we're talking about, it ensures that you're building the right features at the right time. So in order to balance kind of efficiency and speed, what I'm picking up is we want to make sure we're doing the needful, slowing down to speed up. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit on that point you mentioned a bit earlier about like different phases, like you have the pen and paper and then the high fidelity, right? Do you find that most design teams go through like a tiered process like that in the initial phases of design driven development of a feature? Sure. So I've worked on a variety of teams and some teams do a better job of this than others. And I guess that's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Slowing down to speed up is a lot of times when you're doing user research, for example, that feels like slowing down. feels like an excuse to stop working and go talk to a bunch of people about the work that you did. But 
if it ensures that you're building the right thing at the right time, then that'll enable you to move faster. It also means that the developers are building those features that actually need to be built. And you're not just stuck in this build trap of I'm building things and shipping features, but it might not be the features that people need. So it's again, that efficiency versus speed might feel like you're slowing down, but if you're being more efficient, you have a net gain. Gotcha. Now I'd love to hear a little bit about what this design-driven development practice looks like in the field. Like if we were to look at a team and and maybe Airbnb is a great example, like we love their UI, people go look at their practices to learn how they can implement it. Uh, Before we hop into the real world examples, I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. So if you're designing a new web app, a new platform, and maybe you want to try out design-driven development and tackle a new way to build things, you can definitely use LogRocket to not only learn your new way that you're developing your web app, but get down into the errors faster than ever before so you can spend less time in the console and more time in your code editor and actually designing your components. So there's AI-powered features to surface trends that you might not have noticed, heat maps, and a bunch of other goodies. So head over to logrocket.com today and try it out. So in the real world, Amy, we will have design-driven development manifest in a bunch of different ways, right? So if somebody was starting a new component, let's say like on a team, a subscribe page, does this design-driven development happen like with a lot of pe- talking to people on a very like low-fidelity markup first? Or is it different team to team? And is there a real-world team that's maybe public about their process that you've known about that we could point listeners to? Sure. So probably one of the teams that did it best, I worked for an agency for several years. One of our clients was within FinTech. And the head of design came over from Google. And so that she was able to implement a lot of their procedures that they use at Google within this particular company. And so what we would do is we would start with this low fidelity piece. We wouldn't necessarily start with sketches, but think balsamic, if you've used that tool before, like very low fidelity type of wireframing. And so then we would create something and we could show it to the stakeholders and continue to get buy-in from them. But then we would also use platforms like user research or usertesting.com. They also had user researchers on staff that could turn around and interview potential customers. And those are probably the most valuable because you're talking to the people that actually use your application. But from there, once things would get approved, we could iterate on the designs to either fix holes where things weren't working or or customers weren't progressing through the app or we could improve the flows or whatever was needed to be done. Now, the nice thing about it was that we were able to get stakeholder approval faster because we brought them into those conversations earlier and we could show them how the app and the design was progressing, but also we had data to back up the decisions that we were making. And so I found that a lot of stakeholders might not agree with what you wanted to do, but data is not something that you can argue with. And a lot of times people look at design and say, it's objective. You like this, you don't like this. But when you have data to say, this is actually what your users are thinking, then that's a whole different story takes some of that subjectivity out of the decision process, right? That's right. Now, when we introduced this talk, we mentioned Storybook. It's a player in in our conversation we're going to have today. So let's bring Storybook into the picture. Um, How does Storybook help teams set foot, the correct foot forward in design-driven development? Sure. So with any design, 
exactly what we've been talking about. There's a lot of iteration that's happening. And so trying to keep track of all of those iterations and to even build those small pieces and those components that eventually translate into your application, you really need a way to document that. And one of the things I don't think people entirely realize is that within product design, there are tons of variations for a particular component. And when you start taking in, say, six different viewports or three browser engines or touch, sight, and hearing, or even device capabilities like keyboard, mouse, touch, speech, or dictation. We're not even talking about different states with authorization, whether they see one thing or another, depending on whether they're logged in or not. You have color schemes for light and dark. There's contrast preferences. There's also directions. So if you're coming from a country or a language that reads right to left versus left to right, these are all considerations that you have to take into account when you're designing and when you're developing your application. And so one of the things that Storybook does really well is allowing you to view those and document those in a way that makes sense, not only for you, but for your team. And especially as you continue to scale your team someone new to the team can easily see what components have been built and the best way to use those components. So does Storybook give you a, an interactive experience to test different phenotypes and then combinations of these so that, like we, like we talked about earlier, you can collect data on user testing and document it right there? So the only way that you can, as far as I know, the only way that you can really do user testing within Storybook is if you were to conduct a user interview yourself and pull up Storybook to say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, Storybook is really great for, and this is just recent actually, is really great for unit testing. So when you're talking about building a component, a front-end component that a user is going to interact with, it makes sense that you would also test that in the context that they're using it. So testing it within the browser. So a lot of times people reach for Cypress or Playwright for these things, but Storybook actually has the functionality to be able to do that as well now, which is really interesting. That is really interesting. It's like an, a missing corner of their yeah. offer. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that you can see it visually as you're testing it. Unit testing is one of those things that pulls people over to play rate constantly. So it'll be interesting to see that interaction between them as time goes on. Right. And you can also run it headless. So for people that are thinking, man, I don't want to watch <laughs> all those tests run, you can still run that automatically or quickly through the terminal. Just to wrap up this testing and documenting, collecting data, how does Storybook in particular make it easy in your experience to document these things and collect the data so that you can then surface it to stakeholders? Yeah, sure. So they have recently released a new component story format. So you might see this as CSF3. And this is kind of a new way of writing your stories as you're working with Storybooks. A storybook file is just a JavaScript file that generally sits alongside your component. So you can organize it in different ways. But personally, I like to have my component file sitting right next to my storybook file, sitting right next to my test file. With the component story format three, the main difference is that it allows you to pass in props via an object. So if you have several components that you're creating that have similar props, you can just reuse those arguments within each prop that you're displaying. So for example, if I want to show the loading state of a component, so within the component story format three, since you're passing in an object for your arguments, you can use that object in multiple places for each of the components that you're documenting. And 
let me just give an example of what that might look like. You might have a story for your loading state. You might have it for your success state. You might have it for your empty state. And so instead of having to maybe tweak your data set or your database to see if the blank uh, blank return is, or the empty return is the way that you want, within Storybook, you can preview what that looks like. Or instead of having to throttle your data within the developer tools, you can see what that looks like directly within Storybook without having to make those changes. You can tell it so you can store it as a story object and you can affect these props to tell. <laughs> I don't want to say story again, but to tell the different stories of like how you might run through this component. Gotcha. Okay. That's right. There's also an info panel there where you can document all of the props. So when I was talking about onboarding new users, they can easily see what props can I pass in. The other nice thing is you can interact with those props directly within Storybook to see how that affects the component. Now, last specific feature-related question of Storybook. What is auto magic? <laughs> there's a lot of magic features coming out. There's like auto layout, there's auto magic. Yeah, I think this was more of my own term for how Storybook just handles certain things. When we're talking about having to document, say, 34,000 components or 34,000 different states or 11,000 variations and Again, those numbers might seem bloated, but again, when I mentioned having to handle all those views and device variations and user capabilities, all those things really do add up to those numbers. There is an actual math behind it. But Storybook allows you to automatically document that. Storybook really is a living document for your code. And so if you're properly passing in the props, it will automatically update Storybook there's some great integrations with TypeScript as well. So if you've typed all of your components, it automatically or automatically knows what type of prop that is so that it will display that correctly within your props panel in Storybook. Zooming out a little bit, how do you think Storybook has changed over the past year or so, especially when we look at other similar frameworks like Playwright and stuff? Where was Storybook a year ago and where is it now and what direction do you think? the platform is going in. Yes, I think a big piece of it is that living documentation, the fact that it can pick up on your TypeScript types. So when we're talking about that auto magic piece, if a component updates, it can pick up on a lot of things without you having to necessarily go in and modify that storybook file. That, I mean, you'll still have to update it, say if you add, if you need it to display a different state or something like that, but it does do a lot of that heavy lifting for you. So the fact that it is living documentation Another piece is that you can now do the unit testing within Storybook, as I mentioned. And so it's just great being able to do the front-end testing within that browser. And then the last piece that I would mention is that we've talked a lot about Storybook. It is an open source uh, platform. They are sponsored by Chromatic. And so Chromatic, if you connect Storybook to your Chromatic account then you also get visual regression testing. And I feel like that's something that's often overlooked. You can have all of your logic within your code work perfectly, but if the styling is off, say that text knocks it over 9,000 pixels to the right, then it's no longer on the screen and users can't interact with it. So the CSS side of it and the visual regression side of it is really important to make sure that you're not accidentally doing something that you didn't mean to do. And so within Chromatic, it will take screenshots of all of your components so that you can make sure that something didn't change that wasn't supposed to change. 
And you can also include that within your CICD pipeline. So you can connect that to GitHub. And as soon as you push code, it'll hand that off to Chromatic to make sure that all of your screenshots and components look the way that you want it to. Now, if, if we're addressing the topic of the uh, body of people who are um, listening to this podcast, we mostly have developers, web developers, a lot of front-end devs and back-end devs, but there are people who like to build and, and make stuff. And if anybody's out there who has like come from a React background and they just like started making their own side projects and stuff, I'm sure a lot of people are oriented, especially for personal projects, to be like, hey, I'm just going to like create Next App, create React App, start throwing some com- components in there. What would you say to those types of folks on the next app they build? Like if they want to say, hey, I want to try out this design-driven development thing, but you don't want to go like so deep that it becomes this pain in your side, this thorn in your side, that you never do it again. Like if you go running, you don't want to try run two miles, and then it, then it sucks and you never run again. So how can people like dip their toe into it and, and actually get a use out of it? Maybe starting at that personal level. Yeah, sure. So with Storybook, the basic Storybook file is really not that complicated. And so I would say as long as you have that simple file running right next to your component, you can get quite a bit of distance out of Storybook without having to feel like you've got to hotwire all of your props. You don't have to hotwire all these actions or all these tests. You can at least see what that looks like. And I know for me, even on side projects, One area where I've really found a huge benefit to using Storybook is, say, previously, if I wanted to create a new component, I might create a dummy page just so I can see what that component looks like in the browser. And that might not be where it lives, but I'm just trying to develop it and build it. Personally, that feels a little gross because I'm intentionally creating tech debt that I know is going to be deleted. And so with Storybook, I can create that component in isolation and I have a way to view and work with that component without having to create that unnecessary code. The other side of it, I don't know what the other side is. I love that example, like uh, being able to complete create the component in isolation. If we just like double click on that for a sec, like for the independent developer, that's really cool because you, you brought up tech debt. If you just slap it on the page, I totally know what you mean. In your mind, you're like, this is going to move. <laughs> yes. Padding is going to be different later. Like, I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's a thorn in my side. So you can develop it in this little sandbox and then you can use it elsewhere. That separation of development environment, I want to call it, it feels extremely powerful. It feels more of like an organizational thing though and like the here and the now and what you're focusing on. Is there something that relates to, I I, want to say, hopping into actually drawing a button, something like that, that you would recommend to a developer? I I feel like that's a little counterintuitive because a button's not really specific and it doesn't define your design or something. But if you were a developer making a website for yourself, would you recommend drawing it out in Balsamic first if you don't do that? And then designing one of those components. Yeah, sure. So I usually reach for Figma, but that's just because what I know. And I would say just reach for the tool that you know. If you know Balsamic, reach for Balsamic. Um, But I'll typically reach for Figma and then integrate that within, say, Storybook. And then I already have that component. Uh, One thing that I would also tack on is when you're talking about building a side project just for yourself is that there's been plenty of side projects where I've started And then something's come up. And because it's a side project, I don't touch it for a week or a month. And then I come back to it and I'm trying to figure out exactly where I am in the project. Storybook has also been a great way to figure out, okay, what components did I actually build and what still needs to be developed in order to move forward? And so it just does a great job of cataloging 
all those features that you have within your project. And then I'd say if I can make a shameless plug just coming from Redwood, since I am a lead maintainer on the core team, there are several generators within Redwood. So I can just say yarn Redwood generate component and it creates that, that storybook file for me. So you don't even have to do anything, which is really nice. If folks haven't heard of Redwood, it's like a, yell at me if this is wrong, but like a, a pretty opinionated full stack solution for you to pump out web applications. That's right. So. It's opinionated in the best way is what I would say. Cause it's stuff that I would naturally reach for anyways. So for folks that are used to maybe picking up like material UI or something, and they have a lot of opinions about what things look like and how folks interact with them come out of the box, does this conversation of design-driven development still have a seat in the house? And where is that seat? Because it's less on the visual side. And I think that's interesting because when we opened up this talk, you were like, it's really not just the visual stuff. Curious how you see those prefab component libraries in this general practice meld together. Yeah, that's a great question. So if you look at design-driven development as more of product development, then even using a library like Material, it still works because you're talking about, okay, how can I get what I'm creating in front of the customer as fast as possible and getting feedback from them? So even with Material, that still applies. And I would say you could even make a case for Storybook even within Material. So when you go to the Material site, it's not exactly Storybook that's running, but they do have some variation of that because they're documenting the component and how to use it. But if you do any styling on your own to either override the pieces that they offer, or if you have custom components that you're bringing in, those still might have a place to have storybook, to have a storybook within your project. Well, Amy, this has been a great conversation talking about design driven development. I definitely feel a little bit enlightened, like this general trope about this is product driven development under the guise of design-driven development really opens up your eyes and in a lot of doors about how you can, you know, make the thing the customer wants and not the thing the customer doesn't want. So just to plug Redwood again, Amy is very involved over at Redwood. Go check them out if you want to um, build some full stack web applications quickly. And if people want to find you, Amy, in your writings or musings, do you have a blog? Do you have a YouTube channel? Anything like that? I do have a YouTube channel. You can go to slash self teach me. And I am on Twitter and X for the time being <laughs> at the same handle. So also self teach me. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Okay.